Let's uh, open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into this lesson. Father, as we turn to your word, as we look at the record that you have given us uh, in your word, we just pray that you will bless this to our hearts and lives, that that, uh, something that we gain here will give us strength for the days ahead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. My uh, position that I left when I, right before I moved here, the last series of messages I preached was over a year on the first half of the book of, of Genesis. And uh, I think one of the things that really impressed me as I went through those were the, the, the growth of Abraham's faith during the time that he was in the land of Canaan. And I, I think it's worth taking the time to look at it. So, uh, first of all, I want to just mention that, that very early after creation, God begins to reveal his plan of redemption to man. When uh, first uh, Peter tells us that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, so we, we know that his, his uh, plan of redemption started in the past, before the world was made. And then the first record we have of God's plan of redemption in the Bible is Genesis 3, 6, uh, 15. Right after Adam and Eve fell, God says to the serpent that I will, uh, your, your seed and her seed are going to have uh, enmity. You'll breeze him on the heel. He will crush you on the head. And uh, so the seed of woman is where this deliverer, and it's a prophecy of Christ, that where this Christ will come from. And we, be, we see in the first gen, the, uh, genealogy in chapter 5 of Genesis, a genealogy from Adam to Noah, to the birth of Shem, the son of Noah. And then a genealogy in chapter 11, we see uh, from Shem to Abraham. And then in the book of uh, Matthew and also in Luke, we see New Testament chronologies that carry on this line from Abraham to Christ. Now, I, I have done a little study. This first part of our study here is from the chronology of in the book of Genesis, and this assumes several things. It assumes that Genesis 1 is not, a, uh, not poetry, it's narrative. And one of the reasons that people like to say that Genesis 1 is poetry is that then they can be unliteral in their interpretation of it. It's figurative language, so we can kind of interpret it how we want to. Uh, we're going to assume that this is narrative, and, and you can see a, a sighting there of some Hebrew scholars that have done studies on this, and it is very certain that that is a narrative, not a poetry section of the Bible, which means that we can take it to mean actual history of what took place. And uh, Boyd, Stephen Boyd says in his, his chapter, we're, we're not the unproven and unprovable theories of evolutionary biology, geology, and cosmology, and the faulty but rarely challenged assumption of radioisotope uh, dating Uh, no one would be questioning what kind of text this is or the age of the earth. Now, my purpose here this morning isn't to prove the earth is young, uh, but it's just to set the stage for a literal interpretation of Genesis as well as the genealogies that we're going to look at. The uh, second, and by the way, uh, that book, that, that that comes from the book uh, Coming to Grips with Genesis, and that's in your resources. You can see uh, that book. That is a great resource for a lot of other evidence for a young earth, uh, from New Testament writers, from Jesus' own words, from Apostle Paul's writings, a lot of these things in the Scripture. Uh, it's, it's, it's mostly biblical evidence for the, taking Genesis literally. The other, the next assumption, the first assumption, it's not poetry, it's narrative. The second assumption is that it's six literal, literal 24-hour days. 
And, uh, and, and, and this is, uh, you know, it just makes sense. Morning and evening, uh, and, and uh, I've heard people say that, well, the sun wasn't created until day uh, three, I believe it was. And uh, so you can't really say that the days were started yet. Well, I, actually, there's nothing that changes after the sun is created. You've got light from the very beginning that God makes light. And there's day and mo- night, day and night, or mo- you know, morning and evening. And it, it doesn't change after the sun's created. The sun just is the th- creation that God has made to be this light source. So the three major implications from this study is uh, pretty well proved or upheld by scholars, of uh, the, the, especially the poetry part. The second assumption, it, literal 24-hour days, the third assumption is that these genealogies in Genesis 15, 5 and 11 are accurate with no gaps. Uh, some people have said, well, there's, there, we don't know that those are complete. They, there could be gaps. There could be people in between. N- not, this, not these genealogies. These genealogies record the birth, the death, so much information that there, there really can't be gaps in those. And, uh, in fact, I wouldn't be surprised, but what God had it recorded this way so we can see that the earth is really young. So we, I put a timeline in there based on these ge- uh, genealogies. The timeline uh, starts from the time of creation because we've got how old Adam was when he, uh, when he died. We've got all kinds of information here. I don't have, that's not a complete chronology. I don't have everyone listed that's in the chronology. But there's enough here. I, I put enough here in order for us to see where Moses, since we're going to be looking at Moses, where Moses fits in this uh, plan of redemption and also where he fits in the history of the world. So we've got creation. And some of the things I want to point out, uh, Adam died 930 years after he was created. And he lived through the birth of his great 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 grandson Methuselah and you think about that Methuselah was born lived uh, over 900 years and he died the year of the flood so it, it makes it look like the beginning of earth's history is not so long is it from Adam to, to the flood uh, you notice that the uh, flood began 1656 years after creation not a whole lot of time from the beginning of creation until the flood. And uh, we have the birth of Abraham somewhere around 300 years after the flood. We don't know exactly when Abraham was born because he was the son of Terah, and we, don't, we, we just don't know exactly the, the exact year, but it's pretty, we know it's, Somewhere like 949 years plus that he was born after creation. And notice that the death of Noah takes place after, uh, after the, the birth of Abraham. In other words, Noah was still living when Abraham was born. And uh, Noah lived over 900 years too. And then notice the death of Abraham. Shem, the son of Noah, outlived Abraham. Shem was, I think he lived 600 years, I believe it was, that he, he uh, went through the flood with Noah, of course. And, uh, and here Abraham was, Abraham's lifespan was in the lifespan of Shem. Abraham lived 2,000 years after the date of creation and 2,000 years before Christ. So there he is, midpoint between creation and the coming of Jesus Christ. Now Abraham's a key, key player in God's redemptive plan. And I, 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 I'm just impressed as we go through his life with 
the way God dealt with this man and the way his faith grows during the time that God dealt with him. So Abraham, uh, one of the, I think one of the first things that we see about his growth in faith is that he received repeated messages from God throughout his life. First, God called him when he was in Ur of the Chaldees. And he asked, told him to leave for his, uh, this, his country for another country that he would show him. And then, uh, he, now Ur was a center for pagan worship. They worshiped the moon god. There was a ziggurat to the moon god in Ur. Uh, Abraham and his relatives worshiped other gods, it says in Joshua. And Abraham moved with Lot and his wife and, uh, and his father as far as Haran, which is quite a bit north of Ur. And uh, they, he stayed there till his father died. Then God calls him. And, and the call of Abraham that we see in uh, Genesis 12 is the call when he was in Haran. So uh, there were several promises that God made at the time he called him. He, he says, uh, I'm going to make a great nation of you. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you're going to be a blessing. I'm going to protect you. You'll be a channel of blessing to every family of the earth. And by faith, Abraham obeyed going out. And when he arrived in Canaan, he traveled as far as Shechem, which is in Israel, which is... uh, and that's where God promised to give him the land that he was on to, and to his descendants. And there Abraham built an altar. And he, uh, he proceeded to go on east of Bethel, which is a little further south of, uh, of Shechem. And there he built an altar and he called on the name of God. So Abraham, the moon god worshiper, has become a worshiper of the true God. We're beginning to see a major factor in the growth of Abraham's faith, and that is he had a repeated intake of God's word. God kept coming to him with his promises over and over. Sometimes he stated the same promise. Sometimes he stated it in different words with different descriptions. Sometimes he added more truth to what he had previously revealed. And... uh, and we we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. After Lot separated from Abraham, and, and, and you know the story there that Abraham and Isaac's uh, herdsmen quarreled, and there just was not room for them together, so they separated, and Lot went down to uh, Sodom, and Abraham stayed in the land. God uh, uh, speaks to him again and says to All this land you see, look to the north, look to the south. All the land that you see, I will give you and your seed forever, and I will make your descendants as numberless as the dust. And then he settled in Hebron, which was south of what's present-day Jerusalem, and uh, he built an altar to the Lord again. Later, four kings from the east attacked the king of Sodom and Gomorrah, and there was three other kings there uh, in the, this, that area. And uh, they took Lot and his family captive along with other captives. Abraham has 318 trained men and some Amorite friends that, that go up to uh, these uh, kings had taken Lot captive, taken him up as far north as Damascus. So he goes up there and Abraham and these men defeat those armies and uh, bring back Lot and other captives, and here, here we see God's protection. Uh, on his return, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, comes out to meet Abraham. And uh, he was also called a priest of the Most High God. Abraham hears the word of God, this time through a priest. And uh, here's what he says. He says, Blessed be the God of Abraham Most High, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Uh, 
Abraham has experienced God's promised protection, and he was blessed, in this case, by a priest of God who is a type of Christ. Christ is both king and priest. It was interesting to me that this morning in our communion meditation that Omri used this passage from Zechariah where, where the priest sits on his throne. And uh, according to Psalm 110 and also Hebrews 7, Christ is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And he represents us in the presence of God today, making intercession for us. And this was after he offered himself, as a priest offers sacrifices, he offered himself uh, for our sins uh, for all time. And he will come back to reign as king, as Omri brought out. Okay, this brings us to some more promises of God's God's faithfulness and his promise, even when faith falters in this case. There's two cases, two instances where Abraham's showed a lack of complete trust, and yet God protected him. The first one was when he, uh, uh, let's see, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Abraham's beginning to see the faithfulness, that God's faithful to his word, and his faith becomes stronger as he can look back and see what God has accomplished uh, in his life and how he's been true to his word. When he went down to Egypt, there was a famine in the land. He went down to Egypt. He lied about Sarah, said that she was his sister, to disguise the fact that she was his wife. And obviously, Abraham wasn't fully trusting God. I mean, he's promised a lot of things here. He's promised that he's going to give him the land. He's going to make him a great nation. He's going to have a lot of descendants. Uh, well, he's got to stay alive for those things to happen. And uh, he's evidently not fully trusting God at this point. And yet, when he lied to protect himself, God protected him. He struck Pharaoh's house with, uh, with plagues and, uh, until Pharaoh gladly relieved Sarah, released Sarah back to Abraham. After this, he returns to the altar where he, that he built there in Bethel, and he calls on the name of God. He continues to worship God. He continues on. Uh, the second occasion was when Abraham was 99 years old. This was quite a bit later. Uh, he again lied about his wife. This time he was in Philistine territory, and uh, in, in order to protect his own wife, he told Abimelech, that, or, or he had... He told Sarah, you tell people that you're my sister. And he just thought that would keep them. He was afraid that they would kill him for his wife. And so they would preserve him and treat him well because he was a brother. And uh, she was, he was uh, 99. She was 89. She must have still been quite an attractive lady at 89 because people took her, this king took her in. And again, God protects his man by confronting Abimelech in the night in a dream and preventing him from touching Sarah. Here he calls Abraham a prophet. And, and uh, when the psalmist uh, recounts God's protection and kindness to the patriarchs, he says, the psalmist writes, he permitted no man to oppress them and he reproved kings for their sake. Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. No doubt this is referring to Abraham. Do my prophets no harm. By the way, Jacob too was a prophet. He prophesied about his sons uh, before he died. So we, we come now to the unconditional covenant that God cre- uh, cut with Abraham in chapter 15 of Genesis. And uh, this was about 10 years after Abraham entered the land of Canaan. And God comes to Abraham and he says, Do not fear, Abraham. I am a shield to you. Your reward will be very great. 
That's a, rep, uh, that's a repetition of the promise to protect him and to uh, reward him. And Abraham's beginning to wonder, though, how are you going to fulfill these? Here I am, Sarah's barren. I don't have any offspring. Uh, the only heir I have is this slave that was born in my household. And God reveals to Abraham that this man, your slave, will not be the heir. He's going to come. This is when God says, your heir will come from your own body. So God shows Abraham the stars of the heaven. He has him go out and look at them. And, and he says, your descendants are going to be as innumerable as the stars. And at the, at, this is the point where Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. God counted Abraham righteous, not on the basis of anything he did, but only on the basis of faith. And uh, Paul was probably referring to this when he wrote that how God justified Abraham by faith. He, when he wrote in, in uh, Romans 4, I believe it was, yeah, the first part of Romans 4, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, favor but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Neither Abraham nor any other man was ever justified by works. By the works of the law, Paul wrote, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And Paul writes that it is the one who believes who is who who justifies believes in the one who justifies the ungodly, whose faith is credited as righteousness. This tells us that we don't need to clean up our own life to be right with God. It's when we're ungodly and believe that God justifies us. The cleanup begins when we're justified and goes on throughout the rest of our life. Justification by faith was the great theme that sparked the Reformation. You remember that that was the time when the church that was predominant at that time was teaching you're saved by your works and by by the sacraments in the church, and this is a this this was the when when the reformers that were being trained they they studied the scripture they had the the Greek manuscript of Erasmus and they were they uh, Erasmus translated or he fixed brought that New Testament together and put it in the universities in England. Uh, for, for many for cultural purposes. He had no idea of anything like the Reformation coming from it. But these guys that studied it found the biblical truth of justification by faith and they began to preach it. And they, they taught that you're saved by faith, not by works, as the prominent church was teaching. And the they, they'd studied the scripture. They, 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 and these men, uh, these men were many of them put to death. If you read uh, Five English Martyrs by J.C. Ryle, you find that Queen Mary put many, many of these reformers to death. Uh, many of the men, the Church of England, that were true to the word, that had departed from the church of, that was so prominent in those days. So, Paul wrote in Romans, even the righteousness of faith, of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that 
he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the, this is the gospel that God justifies. He's, he's just in justifying the sinner because Christ met justice on the cross. I remember a high school girls many years ago asking me, uh, well, how, how were people saved before Jesus died on the cross? And I think this passage answers it. It's talking about how actually what happened under the law, God was passing over their sins as far as uh, not fully meeting justice for it. The, the, the animals that they offered did not fully satisfy his wrath against sin. They can't. And uh, it, here it says that he, he passed over the sins committed uh, uh, previously so that at the cross the justice would finally be met. So this is what it means that justice was finally met at the cross, that he actually paid for the sins of those believers that were in the Old Testament as well as the ones in the New, as well as all who will ever believe throughout all history at that time. Now back to Abraham. Uh, after Abraham believed God, he had a, uh, God says to him, he says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. And this raises a question in Abraham's mind. And he says, O Lord, how may I know that I will possess it? Still doesn't have that child from his own body. God about to, God's about to cut an unconditional covenant with Abraham and to reveal to him specifics about the promise of the land that more than he had revealed before. He has Abraham bring a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram. And he cuts these animals in two, puts the pieces opposite each other, and, uh, and it says that a deep sleep fell on Abraham and a terror of darkness accompanied it. It's kind of interesting that terror and darkness accompanied the inauguration at the uh, Mosaic Covenant on Sinai. There was both fear and, and darkness when Christ died on the cross inaugurating the New Covenant. God reveals to Abraham that he has descendants, that he and his descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Now, here's the first time that God is letting them know that it's not going to happen in your lifetime, Abraham. You're not going to get the land in your lifetime. But your, your descendants are going to go in a land that isn't theirs. And for 400 years, they will be slaves and I'm going to bring them out of there. This is all going to happen well after Abraham has lived a full life, passed off the scene. So now Abraham doesn't have to worry about, okay, I don't see it happening. It's going to happen in the future. This strengthens his faith to know a little bit more about what God is doing, what, it's, what he's about. So soon he sees a smoking oven and a flaming torch passing between these pieces of animal that he has laid out. And, uh, and, and God is making a covenant with him. In those days, that was the way they uh, made covenants. They, they would, uh, two people, two men would, uh, would come and, uh, they would lay these animals out, and they would walk between them. And uh, what they were in effect saying, this comes from unbi- uh, extra-biblical sources, what they were actually saying is, may the same thing that happened to these animals happen to me if I don't keep my promise, my covenant. In this case, it's not two people going through the through the uh, between the pieces it's one it's god god is the 
This is what's called a unilateral covenant. The, uh, bi uh, the bilateral would be each person's making an, uh, an agreement and a promise to each other. This is only God making a promise to Abraham. And this is to assure Abraham, I will do this. This is what I will do. We find in Jeremiah there was an example of this kind of covenant keeping. God takes people of Judah to task. He's talking about men that were passing between the body parts, and then they break their covenant, and God is taking them to task for doing that. So Abraham is gaining perspective of what God's plan is, and his faith is growing. The next thing we have is the episode with Ishmael in chapter 16 of Genesis. And uh, this is when uh, Sarah hatches a plan to have a child through her, her maid. And she uh, tells Abraham to go into Hagar and uh, raise a child for me. Now, I don't know if, if Abraham thought maybe this is the way that this prophecy would be fulfilled that the heir will come from my own body I don't know if he thought that but this is what he did anyway and uh, so Abraham has a son through through uh, Hagar and that's Ishmael he was 86 at the time that Ishmael was born and uh, and even though he he probably thought that this would be the the heir uh God told him later that, no, this one is not the heir. So we have some uh, further re uh, revelation. Thirteen years later, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham as God Almighty. He admonished him to walk before me and be blameless, and he promises to establish his covenant with him. And again, he promises to make a multitude of nations of him, and he changes his name from Abraham, which is what he's been called up to this point, which means uh, uh, exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And he again promises to give him and the descendants the land of Canaan forever and to be their God and they'll be his people. And this is when God inaugurated circumcision as a sign of the covenant with Abraham he changes Sarah's, Sarah was called Sarai before this, and Sarai is now changed to Sarah, which means princess. And uh, he promised us to give Abraham a son through Sarah. Your heir will come from your wife. She'll be a mother of nations, and kings will come from her. This is when Abraham laughs. And says in his heart, "Will a man be born to a will a child be born to a man one hundred years old, and will Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child?" And he asked that Ishmael might be the one. And God says, "No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him." Not long after this, God appears visibly to Abraham. In the heat of the day, he raises his eyes and looks. There's three men coming, and he runs to greet them, shows them hospitality, washing their feet. Uh, they gives them their shade, the shade of his tree to, for protection from the heat and brings food for them. And as they uh, are eating, they ask Abraham, Where's Sarah, your wife? And he says, well, she's in the tent here. And they say, uh, in, where Sarah can hear what they're saying. And they say that in a year from now, she's going to bear a son. And this time, Sarah laughs. And uh, later, God confronts Sarah about her laughter. And he says, is anything too difficult for the Lord at the appointed time, I will return to you. At this time next year, Sarah will have a son. Now, I, I believe that here that, that Abraham is believing that this is not too difficult for the Lord. And these, these, are, these are probably the appearances that Paul is referring to when he writes in Romans that, it, that Abraham, without becoming weak in faith, contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, 
since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promises of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised he was able to perform. Notice that Abraham looked at and contemplated the obstacles without his faith even weakening. And how could that be? Well, his faith was grounded not on the obstacles, not on the uh, impossibilities, but on the promise of God because he believed that God was faithful and able to do what he said. God is sovereign in these events. God is, Abraham's learning to trust this sovereign God, and uh, he's growing strong in faith. After this encounter, the three men arose and, and they started looking toward uh, Sodom. And, uh, and God speaks, and we, we understand that these three men were, were, one of them was the Lord and the other two were angels that were with him. But they're all called men. It's, it's an anthropomorphism of God and the angels appear in visible forms there. They're, they're spirits also, but uh, uh, they, they all appear in a visible form here. And the Lord says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Notice that in choosing Abraham, God's plan is that Abraham will live uh, a righteous life, an obedient life. It's important that Abraham knows that his God is also righteous and in his judgment, even even his judgment of the wicked, he's about ready to judge Sodom, and uh, and this sparks a dialogue. Abraham is concerned. He knows his nephew Lot is there in Sodom, and and he starts talking with God about, okay, if there's fifty people righteous there, are you going to destroy the whole city? And uh, God says, no. How about? uh, 45 and he gets clear down to 10 no if there's 10 I won't so that's when God leaves Abraham and uh, when uh, the two angels go on down to Sodom and I I always wonder when Abraham looked down the next morning and he saw that smoke rising over there in Sodom what he thought uh one thing he could know for sure is that that there weren't ten righteous men there. And I don't know that he knew that God rescued Lot from that destruction. And uh, we, we might not think Lot seemed like a very righteous man, but Peter says he was a righteous man who was vexed by the, the uh, evil behavior of the people around him. Well... Uh, the next, episode, the next thing is the supreme test of Abraham's faith. We finally come to this section where Abraham is now probably 115 years old. He's been in the land 40 years now. He, uh, God tells him that you're, you take your son, your only son, the only one left. Hagar and Ishmael had been sent away. Uh, you take your only son, the one that you love, and you bring him up to the place I'll show you, and you offer him there as a burnt offering. Remember that Abraham waited 25 years for this son after he entered the land. And he also knows that he's the promised offspring. He's the one through whom God is going to fulfill the promise of numberless as, as numberless as the stars in, in uh, descendants. And uh, he knows this. And yet he's asked to sacrifice his life. So, and Isaac was probably 15 years old at this time. Isaac and Abraham, 115. Uh, notice how Abraham reacts to this. 
He doesn't even ask a question. He doesn't question God. He rises early the next morning, gets things ready, takes off in obedience to God. Sounds like he's off to a nice picnic, but I'm, he's off to offer his son as a sacrifice. Apparently, at, by this time, Abraham has come to know that God knows what he's doing and he's able to keep his promise that he can do anything. There's nothing too hard for him. He brought Isaac into existence when everything looked impossible. So God's going to do something here to keep his promise. And so it doesn't seem to even hardly bother him. He seems confident. They reached the spot that God uh, told him about. And on the third day, uh, and uh, Abraham tells his servants, you stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we'll worship and we'll return to you. And as Abraham and Isaac were walking to the spot, Abraham says, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham replies, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham seems confident and positive. He must know that God will keep his promise with his child, so he conveys a trust that God is faithful and Whatever way he chooses, he's going to take care of this. And uh, we even learn in the New Testament that Abraham believed that God would raise him from the dead. That's in Hebrews uh, 11. James tells us that this act of Abraham justified him. Now, that sounds like that contradicts that he was justified by faith. Uh, the justified by works is James is talking about a little different thing than Paul is. He's not talking about that his works gave him right standing before God. It was faith that gave him that right standing before God. He's talking about this act showed that he had saving faith. And it completed the truth that he was justified by faith. James goes on to say that his faith was working with his works, and by works his faith was completed. It's kind of a, uh, in in other words, a a true faith grows and it has works. And uh, James even asked the question, if a faith faith has no works, can that faith save him? And, of course, the obvious answer is no. It's not saving faith. If there's no works, there's no Real faith. So we have a, Abraham passed this supreme test, and his his faith. You can see how his faith has certainly grown. The next uh, thing that we have is. Uh, a quest for the bride for Isaac. In order for God to fulfill his promise through Isaac, Isaac needs a wife. And uh, Abram does not want want his son to marry a Canaanite woman. So he has his servant, he tells his servant, uh, come and put your hand under my thigh. I'm going to cause you to promise that you'll do what I say go into the land of my relatives back east and uh, find a wife for, for Isaac. And the, the servant is kind of wondering, well, what, what if they don't let her come? What, what if he says, well, here's, here's what Abraham says. Abraham's answer shows both a lifetime of experiencing God's faithfulness and, and uh, that he believes God is able He says, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from my land of my birth, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, to your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and uh, and you will take a wife for my son from there. 
Notice that he believes that God will make this journey successful. If you read the rest of Genesis 24 about this servant getting the bride for, uh, for, uh, uh, for Isaac, you, would, you will believe that this marriage was made in heaven. <laughs> Obviously, the servant had divine guidance as he searched for the wife and, and found Rebekah for, for Isaac. Okay, that brings us to our, our, our third point, and uh, that's what are some of the lessons from the life of Abraham for us? And I, I think the first one that I want to talk about is that God is sovereign over all of life, and he accomplishes his purposes. If we're true believers in Jesus Christ, God has predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son. And God gave us this sure promise in Romans 8 when he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And as we uh, diligently pursue the Lord, we find ourselves being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Uh, that's from Second. Or Second Corinthians uh, three eighteen, but we're even though this is happening, we are being changed. We are being transformed. We are painfully aware that we haven't arrived. We're still, we still are not perfect. We still have things that are not the way they will be when we are exactly in His likeness, and uh, the promise that. We, we've got the, the promise, though, that when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. So either when we die or when the Lord returns, we will be like him. We will have no more sin. We will have, bear his image as it is promised here. And the one that has that hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. Paul wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, and this, this, I just read this this past week, and it really impressed me that he begins, he's writing to a church that has a lot of problems that needs correction in Corinth, and he begins telling them of his thankfulness to God for the grace that was given to them in Christ. And, uh, and then he writes this to them, at the very beginning of his letter to them, God will also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, God is faithful. So Paul is confident, even these sinning Christians that needed a lot of correction and help to, uh, they, they were really, he says at one point, they're, you're babes in Christ. You're, you're, you've just not grown the way you should have. And, uh, and he's dealing with things in that church, and yet he's confident that in the end they will be blameless in the presence of God. He will confirm you to the end that you will be blameless. And uh, God's ultimate destiny for Christians and for, and it's for all Christians that we will stand blameless in the day of Christ. God is faithful who will bring it to pass, even though, even though we need correction, even though we sin. Uh, that's our destiny. The second uh, lesson what we can learn is that God is patient, but he's also on time in keeping his promise. And uh, what might seem a long time to us in God's time, in God's view is not long. Like, like Peter says, a thousand years is like a day and a day is a thousand years. Um, it may seem a long time. And, and the very context in which Peter is writing is people that are mockers that are coming saying, well, where's the promise of his, of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, everything continues as they were and, and they're, they're mocking, they're saying, well, he's not coming. Uh, Peter says he's not slow about his promise like some people count slowness. 
but he's long-suffering to you word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In other words, the reason for his delay is salvation. And, uh, the, and the other reason is it's not his time yet. When it's his time, he will come. And the other thing that probably makes us wish he would come sooner is the evil in the world, the injustices. And even that is still under his control. He is coming at the right time. And when he comes, he will rectify the things that are wrong. The injustice, like in Smed's message this morning, every sin will be punished. Uh, Whether it was in the case of the Christian, their sin was punished on the cross, or you will be punished forever if you are not a Christian. So meanwhile... We wait for God's time, his perfect time, and we persevere in living a godly life, in obedience, in faith. Spurgeon wrote that God's word is a true word, but at times it tarries. He says, if ours is a true faith, it will wait for the Lord's time. Although Abraham waited patiently and in faith until Isaac was born, He still died in faith, not receiving all the promise, the land. He didn't see the innumerable offspring that he was promised before he died, but he died in faith, welcoming welcoming these things from a distance. He was confident they would come. The God who's faithful will bring it to pass. And in fact, God had already told him it won't happen in your lifetime. He, uh, God continues to fill his, fulfill his promise to Abraham. Uh, one of the promises that he uh, made him was that in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, the, in the present time, God continues to bring people to faith, both Jews and Gentiles, every family and and uh, we're not we we know that there are some tribes yet that don't have the gospel and by the way they don't all have to have the gospel for Christ to return not not to take his church out but it will happen before he comes back to reign you think about it if you read in about the great tribulation there's going to be a tremendous salvation taking place there's going to be People, numberless people come out of that from every tribe, tongue, and nation out of the tribulation, and they'll stand redeemed in the presence of God. We see that in the book of Revelation chapter 9. And then uh, Jesus taught that, that when he was teaching how that many of the people that are people of Israel are going to miss out on the kingdom He says, many will come from the east and from the west, and they will sit at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So again, we we see fulfillment in the millennial kingdom. He gave his promise to Abraham's descendants of the land that still has a future fulfillment. And uh, uh, he did give them the land back when Joshua went in and conquered the land. But uh, there are some promises to God's people that they will be brought there when they are new people. He says, I'll take you from the nations, and this is in Ezekiel. I'll take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you to, into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from uh, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe all my ordinances and you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so you will be my people and I will be your God. These are, you know, Israel, there's, there's some Jews in the land today. 
but they're not there as new people yet. They're, they're, uh, they're still Jewish people that have not received. There are a few there that have received Christ as their Messiah, but they're, by and large, the nation has not. And uh, there's coming a day when they will. And like it says in Romans 11, uh, all Israel will be saved in the future. And uh, these, are, these are promises yet to be fulfilled, but the, these are promises, land promises, that God made to Abraham. I think another lesson is that we must feed on God's promises and get to know his attributes if we're to grow in faith and to assure our hearts before him. The author of Hebrews wrote to Jewish Christians uh, to encourage them in their faith. He urged them to imitate those who through faith and patience inherited the promises. He cites Abraham as an example of one who patiently patiently waited and received the promise. The passage indicates that the reason God swore in Hebrews 6, the reason that God swore to Abraham by an oath and did the uh, unconditional covenant, it was to that he desired to show even more the heirs of salvation, the, the unchangeableness of his promise. In other words, God had in mind more than just Abraham when he did, swore that covenant. He had in mind future heirs of the promise. And that would include us. And In fact, the writer of Hebrews does apply it to us. That by two unchangeable things, the oath and the promise, it is impo- and it's impossible for God to lie. Remember his character we must know his character in order to do this. So we, have no, we who have taken refuge have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope is an anchor of our soul based on Jesus who entered the very presence of God for us. So this, what we have in Christ is, is sure and steadfast as much more so even than the promise to Abraham of his uh, when he did this covenant with him. And the fourth lesson that I think we have is that our faith will be manifested by persevering in obedience to God's word. God's plan is that true saving faith will produce good works. And two passages which emphasize that salvation is not by works, but by faith, also point out the importance of works in the Christian life. Paul wrote to Titus that he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs, so that those who have believed God will be careful to maintain good deeds. He wrote to the church in Ephesus, by grace you have been saved through faith, not of, your work, uh, not of yourselves, not of works, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So there we, we, both of these that say that we're not saved by works say that we are saved to good works. We will do good works if we have true faith. So I think these, uh, this study of the life of Abraham gives me hope uh, I'm not quite as old as Abraham. It gives me hope that I'll still grow in faith, that I will get to know God better, and uh, that, you know, we, we also die in faith. Uh, for one thing, we, we have received some of the things by faith. We've see, received justification when we believe in Jesus Christ. But... Uh, the future promises of uh, being like him is yet, that's yet future. The redemption of the body is yet future. So if we die before the rapture, we, we die in faith that we will receive a new body when he comes. Um, and, and it should give us perseverance in this life as we, as we see that God's purpose, his eternal purpose, he is about, he will perform, he will perfect it. Uh, 
there's no way that he will go back on what he purposed to do. In fact, a sovereign God is able to do what he chooses to do. So, uh, looks like we're just right on time, so I'll just close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time of study, of considering the, the life of Abraham and what you've done there, and that it, your plan of redemption began early, and it continues on until the, until the new, new heaven and a new earth come into being. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.